Awesome. We are looking at an amazing subject this morning. It's called the rapture of the church. Now, if you go look into a Bible concordance, you're not going to find the word rapture. So we're going to look, I'm going to show you this morning where the word rapture comes from. But it's a, the next, it's going to be a huge prophetic event that's coming in the future. This week I was uh, looking at a book by uh, uh, Dr. David Jeremiah. You heard of him? Dr. David Jeremiah. In 2008, he wrote a book called What in the World is Going On? And I like how he opened up the book. He opened up the book with this. He says, what are you going to be doing when Christ returns? What are you going to be doing when Christ returns? Where are you going to be at in life? Because it's going to come. It's the promise of the Word of God that Christ will come again. He will come again. He, he will be faithful and true. And, and the question is, where will we be in life? What will we be doing? You know, as Christians, you know, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It may be in our lifetime. All the signs point to our lifetime. But we don't know when. But I like to call them famous, famous last, last words. The, the Bible closes out with Revelation chapter 22. These are, these are the words that the Bible closes out with. Revelation 22, 12 through 13 says, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Seven or eight verses later, Revelation 22, verses 20 through 21, uh, the Bible closes out with this. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. I love how Scripture closes out. It closes out with the promise that he will finish what he, what he began at Calvary. At Calvary, he died on the cross for our sins. He paid the price. He rose from the grave for our justification to put us in a right standing with God. But there's coming a day that he will come again. And the question is, are we ready? Will we be ready? It's a huge question. So what I want to do this morning, as we look at the subject of the rapture, and as you've heard, I'm sure you've heard before, many people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, neither is Trinity. Neither is the word Bible in the Bible. Neither is the word missions. There's a lot of words that aren't in the Bible, but they're biblical. But I'm going to show you where theologians and where we get the phrase rapture from. I want to answer uh, four questions this morning concerning the rapture. The first one is, where did the word come from? That's very important. We need to know where that word comes from. So when people ask us, where do you find that in the Bible? You can point to them and show them where the word came from. Secondly, what's going to happen? Thirdly, how will it affect me? And fourthly, um, how do we respond knowing about the doctrine of the rapture and knowing that it's going to happen again? So let's look at the first question. The first question is this. Where does the word rapture come from? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The word, and as you're turning there, I'm going to give you some information. The word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not in the English Bible. It's not in none of the ancient translations. It's not there, but I'm going to show you where we got it from. It actually came from the, the Latin Vulgate Bible, the Latin translation of the Bible, and I'm going to show you the words so you can circle them in your Bible to know where this word came from. Let's pray, then we'll get into the word. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, as we dig into it now, Lord, um, teach us, and as this passage in Thessalonians closes with the part that we're looking at. Encourage us, God, 
to know that you are faithful and that you will come again. And let that spur us on to holy living. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen. As I said, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not in the English Bible. It's not in none of the ancient translations. So look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. We're going to read the passage, and then I'm going to stop you where we find the Latin word for rapture. Uh, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and then with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be, here it is, right there, if you, if you mark in your Bible, it says, we'll be caught up. We'll be caught up. If we were reading, if you had the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, it would say, we will be raptura. The phrase caught up in, in Latin, in Latin Vulgate translation, the word is used raptura. In the Greek, it's um, harpazo. It's harpazo. It's used 14 times in the New Testament. And it has different variations of meaning, but I'm going to read them to you based on how it's used in context of other chapters, of, of, of other places in the Bible. But that's it right there. Then we who are alive and remain will be, there it is, caught up. In Latin, if you look in the Latin Vulgate, you'll see it's the word raptura. In the Greek, it's harpazo. But uh, the four definitions of, of this word harpazo that's used in the New Testament one is, is to claim for oneself. Christ is going to come again, and he's going to finish what he started. He's going to claim what rightfully belongs to him, and that's the born-again believers. Amen. He's going to claim, you are mine. You were bought with the blood. You were bought with my sacrifice at Calvary. You were justified by my actions of what I did at Calvary in the empty tomb. And Jesus says, I'm coming back. I will take that one, and I will take that one, because they received me as their Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Number two, based on John 6, 15, uh, uh, Harpazo, it means to seize by force. It means, like it or not, lottie dotty, you're coming up. <laughs> to seize by force, based on John 6, 15, that word is used. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to talk about this verse a little bit later, but the Apostle Paul is dragged out of Iconium, he's stoned to death, and... He, he, well, they thought he was stoned to death, but he has an out-of-body experience that he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he uses that word also. And there, harpazo means to move to a new place. We're moving. Home is shifting from here on earth to a place called heaven, the rapture. And then finally, one of the most common verses that people look at uh, when it comes to this word harpazo caught up is found in Acts 8.39. It means to, to catch away speedily. Let's look at it. Acts 8.39. Um, and when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the Enoch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. It's a, a quick removal. It's a is what the text implies with Philip after he witnessed to the Ethiopian Enoch. It was a quick removal. So the next time someone says to you this word, or harpazo, or as the Latin says, raptura, or our English word, we get rapture, it's not in the Bible. Just remind them, neither is Trinity, neither is missions, neither is uh, the word Bible. Uh, there's many concepts that we give depth words to to define a theological subject. But in actuality, raptura, from the Latin, 
is there. And that's where we in the English-speaking world get, our, um, get the word rapture from. Amen? So let's look at what's going to happen. Question number one is where does the word come from? Right there, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the word caught up. Let's look at uh, what's going to happen. Let's uh, look at this passage in context. Go look back up at 1 Thessalonians 4.15. What's going to happen? What's going to physically happen in the universe, in the world that we live in, according to Scripture? What does God's Word say? Let's look at it. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism in the Bible for people passing away. But look at verse 16. Let's, let's look at this process through this verse real quick. It's loaded from beginning to end. Verse 16, it says, first it says, for the Lord himself. For the Lord himself, Jesus, the one who was crucified at Calvary, the one who rose from the grave, is who, is who was talking about. And notice what it calls him. It, calls, it gives him, ascribes to him deity, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, it will be him who returns, the one that, that walked the streets of Jerusalem, that went throughout Galilee preaching the gospel. It will be him himself. And then it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. John chapter 14, Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place. And he says, and then he continues in that chapter, if I go and prepare a place, I will come again. So it's a place. The Greek word for place is topos. It means a place marked off by boundaries is what the definition means. So Jesus is at this place called heaven. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, he calls it the third heaven. Scripture teaches three heavens. All of Scripture, you have the first heaven, which is the, um, the atmosphere around the earth where planes, birds, and all of them fly. Then you have the second heaven, that of the universe. But then Scripture talks about a place called the third heaven. It's geographical location we're not sure of because in Scripture, when we see people that have visions, it's like they're just, they have a vision, they're raptured, they're, they, it's just here to there, and, but it's a place. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, talking about when he's talking about himself in a humble state, when he got stoned uh, outside of Iconium, whether he, said, he's, he even says, I'm not sure. He says, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. In other words, it was just, bam! And he has this vision of heaven. He was there. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which man is not permitted to speak. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. If you're taking notes, the furthest man, how, what's, what's the furthest man has traveled from the earth? It happened on uh, April 1970. I was three months in the womb, in the, the, the moon, Apollo 13, where they went around the moon. That is the, far, that is the farthest distance that man has traveled from planet earth, according to our records. But not necessarily. Wait a minute. The Lord Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, 
has ascended above the heavens to the highest heaven, to a place called the third heaven, which one day he will leave and he will come back. It says, it says in verse 16, he will descend from heaven. Let's continue. Um, it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, verse 16, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Um, had a lot of great study in this this week. You know, who's talking, who's saying what. Uh, it says, with a shout. It, 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 that part of the verse is really being ascribed to Jesus descending. And the only thing I can think of as I'm looking at this is Lazarus. Is Lazarus, is Jesus calling Lazarus forth from the grave? You know why, he's, you know why he, he used Lazarus' name, don't you? Because if he would have said, come forth, they all would have came out of the grave. But he called Lazarus forth from the dead. Lazarus is there in heaven. He's chilling. Oh, and he goes back. And Jesus raises him from the dead. He raises him from the dead. It says, with a shout, the shout of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, the voice of the archangel. What's up with that? What's the voice of the archangel going to say? I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. But I like what William McDonald said. William McDonald, Dr. William McDonald says this, talking about the voice of the archangel. He says, his belief anyway is the archangel is summoning the angels of heaven as a military escort to accompany the Lord and his saints through the enemy territory back to heaven. So it's like a royal procession. The angels are forming for us to head back to heaven. This is going to be epic. This is going to be climatic. I mean, this is going to be huge event. Continuing with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. All the faithful believers throughout all the ages will be brought back from the grave. Not in this zombie-like body. But no, nothing like that. Nothing scary, nothing spooky, nothing weird. But in a glorified body. A perfect body. A glorified, perfect body. And then look what it says. If it happens in our day and age, if it happens today, if it happens before I finish the sermon, or this week or whatever, it says, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be, and if we were reading the Latin Vulgate Bible, Raptura together, then we who are alive and remain will be, our English version says, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. My friend, for centuries this has been called, and it still is today, the blessed hope. The, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our faithful God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's much debate about the timing of the rapture. Um, at Calvary Chapel, as well as myself, I'm a pre-trib guy. I believe the next prophetic event is his rapture, followed by a seven-year tribulation, followed by the millennial reign of Christ. But I understand out there, there's many great Bible-believing Christians and people that love the Lord, just like you and I, they have different views. Some of those views is the mid-trib. You know, we see the tribulation in Scripture, we see the seven-year period, and we see a definite mark in the book of Revelation of a three-and-a-half-year period. And some people see some verses, and they say, oh, no, I believe it's the mid-trib. Then there's some people, based on some verses they see, 
They put the, the rapture at the end of the great tribulation. Then there's, there's some people, uh, Rosenthal, a gentleman by the name of Rosenthal came out recently, not recently, in the past 20 years, believes that the, the, the rapture is going to take place at the three-quarter mark. There's all these views. Let me just say this. As Paul Benware said in his book, Understanding the Times, regardless of your position, we all agree that he is coming again. And what unites us all is that we all believe in a rapture, in a return of Christ, in a great tribulation. And let's, let's have some great debate. Let's have some good discussion. But never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever divide on eschatology. There's many great biblical views on eschatology. Now, I could take you to Thessalonians where it says, it says there, Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. I could take you to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, after these things, um, after these things, Revelation 4, 1, and we start this 16-chapter period in the book of Revelation where church is not mentioned, where Christians is not mentioned. It's where it's the great tribulation. After these things, Revelation 4, 1, after what things? The church age. I could sit there and present to you my pre-tribulation view. And let's talk about it, let's, let's, let's debate it, but at the end of the day, it's, not, it's nothing to divide over. Let, let's, let's, let's have discussion, but let's have unity in the faith that regardless of your position, he's coming again. Amen? Amen. Okay, I can't, I can't stress that enough. We, we, don't, we can't divide over it. We, we, we look forward to his coming, you know, and when we're, when we're there or we're going up in the air, and we're like, I told you so. <laughs> and then, you know, or, you know, or, Things are going to be breaking loose on earth, and they're going to look at me and say, I told you so. And so either way, we're looking forward to his return. So that's what's going to happen on this earth. 1 Thessalonians chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Oh, let's not forget, look at verse 18. Beautiful words here, beautiful words. Are these words meant to scare people? Are they meant to say, uh, am I, I don't, eschatology. Look at what he says in verse 18. This is the purpose of these. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These words should be comforting. If, if you, well, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, they should be comforting. Now, if you're a born-again Christian, you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then these words should be comforting because you ultimately know who is going to triumph. You know who's going who's to win in the end. Jesus is, and you're a follower of him. Now, this brings us to our text in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the question is this, how will it affect me as a believer? What's going to take place? Um, I don't know, but what would happen if you stepped out of the atmosphere of the earth? What would happen? What was that movie, uh, Sandra Bullock, um, Gravity? What happened when they they stepped into outer space and they didn't have their suit on? Oops, they're done. You need a bodily transformation for this thing called the rapture. And on top of that, we live in a sin. We're born again. Our hearts are right before the Lord, but we still live in this sinful body. And our bodies need a transformation to make our bodies ready for this glorious place called heaven. So let's look at um, my third bullet here is how will it affect me? Turn over to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's look at verse 50, continuing with our verse-by-verse study. 
through the book of Corinthians. One more chapter, chapter 16 next week, and then we'll be rolling into 2 Corinthians. So the question is, as a born-again believer, as a follower of Jesus, what's going to happen to me on this day? What, if I'm alive or if I've passed away, what's going to happen to my body? That's a big question. Big thoughts for big minds. So let's take a look at it. Verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, the perishable. Your body is not suitable for heaven in its current state. Right now, the way your body is set up, you are, you are only made to live in one place, and that's planet Earth, where there's water and there's air and there's life. It's suitable for life here and here only. But to be taken out of this place, there's got to be a transformation. If you, leave this, if you were to leave this planet in your current state, like that movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock, you would die. So you need a, trans- you need a transformation. But not only that do you need this transformation, but you need a new body, a glorified body, a perfect body for a perfect heaven. Um, look at verse 51. Let's look at this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, when we see the word mystery in the New Testament, he's not talking about something that's completely unknown. What he's saying in the, here in the New Testament is he's saying something that was previously unknown but is now being made known. And that's what we're talking about here, the, the rapture, the, the, uh, the rapture of the church. He says, uh, behold, I tell you a mystery. The church, we see in the New Testament, the church is called a mystery. The, the, the Jews rejected Jesus. Of course, it was his sovereign plan. He put them on the shelf. They rejected the Messiah. And we are now in what we call the church age. And they, were, they didn't see that. It was a mystery that God would turn to the Gentiles and start this program we call the church, which we find in the New Testament. But it says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Here it is, guys. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. You know, I was looking this week at NASA's website. It takes NASA two years to make, take a person and turn them into an astronaut. To make a person qualified to leave this earth, it takes two years of training. How long does it take God to make someone suitable to ch- A twinkling of an eye. It takes God, it says there in verse 52, it takes God a moment in the twinkling of an eye. A moment the definition of a moment is a bit, an instant, a split second. It says, in the twinkling of an eye, it takes, how, how, how long does it take for a blink? Does anybody know? You can get three blinks in a second. It, a blink takes three-tenths of a second. So all that this, this passage is saying, it's going to happen so fast, you're going to be like, bam, we're out of here. It's kind of like a sonic boom. Boom, it just happens. I was on the carrier Eisenhower. I remember we were up on the flight deck. The skipper got her intercom. He says, look off to the east. And I saw that little, little, gray, little gray fuzz. It was an F-14 Tomcat coming. And right as he passed the carrier, it went, boom.
and it shook this 95,000-ton aircraft carrier with 6,000 men, five stories high. But it's going to be like that. It's going to be like, boom, and it just happens, and we're there. It's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment. Verse 53, all this is going to happen in that nanosecond. It's going to happen so quick, you're not going to realize it. You're going to be like, wow, that was quick. Verse 53, for the perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. My friend, this event is nothing to be fearful of. It's nothing to be scared of. It's nothing to be like, ooh, that sounds like something in a sci-fi movie. This is nothing to be fearful of or be scared of or to be worried about unless you're not saved. It's none of those. Because look at what the Apostle Paul is going to say. Through this process, the Apostle Paul is going to mock death. He's going to mock death. Look at it, verse, um, the last half of verse 54. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And here he goes. Paul's turning to death and saying, you know what? You've had your final say, and you are over. Verse 55, he says it mockingly in a question. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There is no victory for death no more. Oh, death, where is the sting? Think about all the pain and the hurt and the damage that death causes. I don't know about you, but I hate death. I can't stand death. Every time I go to a relative's funeral, it rips my heart out. And I cry like a baby because I can't stand it. But one day, oh death, I'll be able to say, where is your sting? Your sting will never, ever, ever be again because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of the promise of his return. Look at verse 56. Death is destroyed, is what God's word teaches. The sting of death is sin and the power of is the law. Excuse me. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In context, the victory he's talking about in this passage here is our victory over death. But I like to take it a step further. I like to say because of his death on the cross and because of his resurrection from the dead, because of his spirit living in us, we can walk in victory today despite our circumstances, despite our situations. We can have victory today. Life throws me curveballs. I know life throws you curveballs. There's times where we're down and out. We're distressed. We're laid low. But it's in those moments where life has afflicted us and things have gone south that we just look inside and we look up to the Lord and we say, Lord Jesus, I'm taking my eyes off this circumstances. I'm taking my eyes off this situation. And I'm putting my eyes on you. And despite what's happened, I'm going to walk in victory. Because you're victorious. You're victorious. You've defeated death, hell, and the grave. And that's my inheritance by following you and trusting in you as I can walk in victory. Regardless of the sickness, regardless of the disease, regardless of what's happening with my family, I'm just going to, with what's happening with my children, I'm just going to praise the Lord. I'm going to walk in faith. And I'm going to trust in your word. It comes to our children. 
The Bible says, train up a child in the way she, go, in the way she goes, and when he gets older, he will not depart from it. Lord, I'm just going to walk in victory. I'm just going to walk in faith, and I'm just going to trust. Despite where they're at right now, despite what they're doing, I am going to walk in this victory, and I'm going to trust you and have faith that you're going to take care of my children. We've got, we got to walk in faith. We've got to walk in victory. We can't be depressed and downtrodden. You know, and when we get to those places where we're depressed and we're downtrodden, we just got to lift up our heads and say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth, and he's going to pull me, and he's going to take me through this. Going back to the subject of the return of Christ, it's imminent. It's imminent. It can occur at any moment. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. My question to you this morning is, wow, David, you've educated me on this deep theological, eschatological, eschatological truth of last days and things that's going to happen in the end. I appreciate that. I got that in my mind. I got that in my heart. Got it. Roger, check. But what do I do? How does this apply to my life today? What's the application of knowing and understanding the rapture and the return of Christ? What's the application for today? I'm glad you asked. Number one, I'm going to give you four of them. Number one, be ready. Be ready. Well, how do I get ready? Do I go? I, I saw this uh, cartoon. I, I tried to find it this week. I was going to get it copied and get it put up on the screen. But there's this, um, there's this old man up on a roof. He's standing on the corner, and he's, um, he's, he's flapping these, these um, pieces of paper, these big pieces of paper. And the grandma comes out and says, Jim, if you don't come down right now, that's the last book I'm getting you on the rapture. So what do we do? Do we go climb up on a roof? Do we go to the hilltops and do we start barricading and preparing ourselves? No, we don't. We live in this world, but we're not of this world. We continue with our daily lives. But in that, living our daily life, when it comes to, number one, being ready, is this that you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's how you're ready. Whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, no matter who you are in life, is you receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, where he comes into your life and you say, God, I'm done with that old life. I'm done with my sin. You understand your guilt before a just and holy God. We've all lied, stolen, blasphemed, used God's name in vain. We've all broken his law, broken his commandments, which is the definition of sin. And it's humbled us, and we trust in Christ. That's how, that's number one on how to be ready, is that a person has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. Number two, actually number two, three, and four is in verse uh, 58. Let's look, look at verse 58. Our final verse for uh, chapter 15. He says, uh, Therefore, my beloved brethren, number one, right there, be steadfast. Be steadfast in your Christianity, in your walk with the Lord. In other words, be firm. Be secure. Make up your mind that, man, I'm, I'm, taking, I'm, taking, I'm taking this on by the, by the reins, and I'm going to live for Jesus and I'm living for him till the end. I'm firm, secure. I've made up my mind. That's what it means to be steadfast. That's what vines 
defines the word uh, steadfast as firm, secure. And I added to it making up your mind, being focused. You've got to be steadfast in your walk and in your ministry. Actually, I think the third one could pertain to ministry. It said, therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast. Here's number three, the next one. It says, be immovable. Be immovable. Being firm, unyielding. When you put your hands to the plow, whatever ministry you put your hands to the plow, do it with all your heart. Do it the very best. Be immovable in the ministry that you're a part of. Whether it's serving in the church or reaching out to a neighbor, it doesn't all happen right here within the body. Sometimes it happens in your neighborhood. Sometimes it happens in your schools. But be diligent in what God has called you to do. Be faithful in the ministry that you're a part of till the very end. Till the very end. And number four is what we're going to look at in a second. So number one was be ready. Number two is be steadfast. Number three is be immovable. And number four, be, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, that word abounding means to be overflowing in your service to Jesus. It means being overflowing in your service to Christ in the body and out of the body. Be overflowing, be abounding. Why? Is, is, is ministry ever for nothing? No. Because it says right there, look what the Word of God says. Uh, verse 58 ends, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let me tell you this. Whether you have a highly visible ministry in the church or outside the church, or whether you have little or no visible ministry in the church, it's never in vain. Everything we do for Jesus counts. And everything is powerful and impactful. Everything that Alex says to those young ladies in private, in conversation, in counseling, she can rest assured that it's not in vain. Whether they do it or not, whether they accept it or not, I still to this day remember the words spoken to me by my parents and by my family and those nuggets of truth that pastors and leaders have given me. I, I, I remember my, my, my Christian buddy Joseph getting up in my grill. I was a young Christian, 1992, 93-ish. I was dating a young lady. I had no business dating. And Joseph got up in my grill and said, you have no business seeing that young lady. He, lay, he laid the wood on me. And I still remember what he laid out for me that day. And I still remember those to this day, those words he spoke to me. The words we speak for Christ and the words we speak in ministry and the words we speak of encouragement, uh, correction, rebuke, uplifting, they're never, ever, ever in vain. we got to remember that. So mom and dads, when you tell your kids and you warn them and you tell them that, hey, what you're doing is wrong, you know, there's a better way to do this, and they just kind of shrug it off and keep doing, understand this. Your words are not in vain. You're not, your words are not in vain. Ministry is not in vain because we're heading towards this great event called the return of Christ. 
these two passages I've showed you this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, uh, we could go much, much deeper. I, I encourage you to go home and study these passages. But this is the core foundation on the doctrine of the rapture. As I said in the beginning, um, be ready. That, that's our word. That's our, our word of being an evangelist and, and evangelism and reaching out to the world is tell people, you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. We didn't say nothing about, you need to start going to church every Sunday or you need to start all these do's and don'ts. You need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and let his Holy Spirit begin to change you and transform you into a holy, full, holy, wholehearted, de devoted Christian. Amen? Amen? Amen. Hope you're encouraged by this uh, beautiful doctrine. It's not meant to scare. It's meant to encourage you that one day, death will be no more. Death will be no more. It'll be, it'll be defeated. It'll be slain. So that's the way life was meant to be in the beginning. In the beginning with creation, with, with Adam and Eve. Life was meant to be eternal. But these hard-headed people, <clears throat> Adam and Eve, disobeyed the Lord, brought the fall. And now we're going back there one day. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of the rapture. Thank you for the truth of your return. Help, it, help us to understand this. And this, God, help us to be faithful in our devotion to you and walking in holiness in obedience, in being faithful to what you've called us to do in this life. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for this awesome Bible truth. Pray, Lord, you to strengthen our hearts. As, as your word said to us this morning, let it encourage us in our walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. All God's people said, amen.